this was really interesting to me as I was going through uh, this entire last couple of weeks doing some presentations on hormones. I, I kept bumping into some of the behavioral aspects of just nutrition. And uh, I realized as I looked back on our recent little canon of research reviews that it had been a while since I'd done one on the behavioral side. And, and I thought this was just something that was really, really interesting on how we, we pass down those traits to our kids uh, in terms of either nature or nurture. You, you, we understand the genetics, even in how our brains are formed and the personality traits we may carry forward. But of course, what can supersede that more than anything is how our brains actually develop in the environments they do. So a uh, couple, couple points of full disclosure. Uh, my second doctoral dissertation, which was in health education, I did my dissertation, wrote an entire full book on, on the, the exploration of and potential mitigation of childhood obesity. So that's, that's a, a strong level of interest and, you know, I would call somewhat expertise for me. Then in my master's degree in creative and professional writing later on, I, I also focused in uh, the social sciences, specifically creative nonfiction, and ended up writing a, a narrative nonfiction book on parenting, which includes some of these things. There's just the personality traits and just the parenting styles that we're going to go through. So let's uh, let's dig in and and pick apart some some things we can learn about how children grow up impacted by food, specifically at the parental level. And uh, uh, there are many many different models so far I've used at presenting these kind of things on Fridays. And and one goal in the back of my mind, besides just the information that we go through is to teach our audience, specifically our clients, our coaches, just a little bit more about the research process. So, you know, how research is conducted, how to best interpret it, all of those different things that, that we can glean from it uh, in, in kind of a headline world. You know, most of us consume research, quote unquote, by just looking at a headline, you know, oh, this does this, swipe, you go to the next article, this does this, swipe. And we just kind of take that information, that headline as truth, without really understanding what goes on uh, in that entire process. So let's, uh, let's look at this one particular study, uh, and, and that's all we have today. That was my, my point in going through that little explanation. Um, I'm not going through a massive meta-analysis. I'm not comparing, like we did last week, five different studies trying to encircle a topic. This particular study was so good for so many reasons I think we could we could just dive into this and actually pick apart a lot of aspects without even going further than this one study. So in Belgium, this was a survey study conducted, uh, spread out over six school districts. And as the title suggested, the, the entire backdrop was based on what the education level of a mother has on the child's eventual eating habits. And it went way deeper than that. That's what I that's what I loved about this. You're gonna you're gonna learn some stuff that go well, well, well beyond that. But uh, at the end of the survey, with with you know disqualifications and so forth, they ended up with 316 mothers, average age 33, almost 90 percent of whom were working, 
the kids were all very young, you know, two and a half to seven years old, average age being almost five years old, about split half and half um, uh, with gender. Uh, and the questionnaire is, you know, as is typical in a in a survey study, it's a Likert scale, which means, you know, a five point Likert scale, you know, do you, you know, completely disagree, completely agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, you know, blah, 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 all the way to neutral. And, and they looked at four particular elements, the consumption of fruits and vegetables and the consumptions of sweets and soft drinks. And what's interesting about this is just a point of study. When you when you're developing something like this, you automatically know there are certain biases that show up in studies and just how we all answer questions. So you try to put in enough redundancy in a study so that as the, the surveyee is going through these, you know, hopefully they're being diligent and, and as honest as possible in every question. So just rewording something a little bit differently, adding a little bit of a context shift here, there, sometimes you can get them a little bit closer to the truth. Because as you could imagine, if you were surveyed, uh, even if you know this is anonymous, um, you know, nobody's going to see this, your name's not on it. But if they're asking you questions that you feel a little bit assaulted, like, wow, they're, they're talking about my value as a parent, you know, was I a good parent or a bad parent? You know, even when there's nobody watching but ourselves, we tend to kind of fudge up a little bit. You know, we want to make sure that we're, you know, ah, that's not me. I'm, I'm this kind of parent. I would never do that. And then your spouse could be going like, are you kidding me? You're, you're this way. So, so self-reported studies like this still aren't perfect, but the fact that they didn't say, you know, good food, bad food, they picked two somewhat what we could all agree upon are, are good foods and two that are not so good. And then they, they also integrated into the questionnaire uh, methods of parenting. So restrictions, things like, you know, we just don't allow that or verbal praise, you know, you, 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 you show some value assertion regarding certain foods. This is a good, you know, hey, eat your strawberries, eat your carrots, way to go, little Johnny. Uh, or negotiation, like, hey, if you eat your green beans, you can have a cookie. You know, that's, you know, that's negotiation. You know, or instead of, you know, restriction, like, we, you don't eat that, you little brat, get out of the fridge. You know, maybe just discourage them, like, oh, those aren't that good. You know, those, you know, we'll eat that sometimes, but it's not a great food. So now there's some rationale building. And then there is our own modeling behavior. And this is kind of a big thing that I'm going to get to that at the end. Uh, but all of that, and they wanted to say, okay, how do we do that as parents per a person, a parent's education level? And here's what's interesting. I asked uh, my youngest child who's majoring in psychology in college, um, I asked this question I, I, right off the bat. I said, do you think, because they, they broke this up, let me see if it's on the next slide. Um, it's on actually, it's the next one after this. I said, based on a, a, a mother who's educated at the like college graduate and above level, or, or like a high school vocational level, or at a you know, less than high school tech level, like which one of these parents do you think would, would do X, Y, Z? And uh, she immediately had a great response, which was, and this again, this goes back to our biases, right? So even as somebody taking this uh, survey or as somebody just reading a headline or thinking, oh, just looking at the question of the, 
headline of the actual study, I already have a presupposition as to what this finding is going to be. So my daughter, when I asked that question, she said, she immediately said the high education client, high education mother, I'm sorry, uh, will do the best. But then she caught herself and she goes, no, no, wait a second. Those are the women who may actually like, you know, be over restrictive. Like they could say, oh, you can only eat like five almonds a day, kid. That's your whole food because I want you to be the perfect little trophy child. And so she said it might be the ones in the middle. And uh, so I, so before I had even gone through the entire study, it was interesting to get that particular uh, insight. And then at one point I asked her, you know, after I'd given her a little bit more information, you know, how we, her mother and I did as parents, how do you feel we were? And, uh, and I'll give you that answer toward the end. But, but here is just a backdrop. You guys have probably already read this as I was rambling on, but for young children, the most influential aspect of the immediate social environment is the family. So uh, I think we can all agree upon that. I don't think that's a particularly charged uh, issue. But there are there have already been a lot of research studies. I mean, I mean, unbelievable amounts on this particular topic. And this was a particular study that I like the way they brought up a lot of those past research. This was not a meta analysis where they were comparing and doing a literature review on everything that's ever been studied about this. Yet in the course of their own narrative of their study, they did cite uh, it, it, it just a bevy of, of good studies. And a lot of it was just parenting in general. So one the, the two major ways we seek as parents to impact food intake is to restrict certain foods or pressure to eat other foods. So you can kind of think of that negative and positive vacuum of parental guidance there. And then uh, uh, one researcher pointed out that of the four parenting styles, when we're dealing with food, even though it could exist, we typically leave out the negligent parent. The negligent parent is just as advertised. You know, that person just doesn't, you know, just actually does leave the child uh, in a perilous situation without any guidance or support. That's 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 just harmful. That's that's actively neglecting, and that that's hard to do psychologically with food. So so they really look at the authoritarian, authoritative, and permissive. And authoritarian and authoritative are so close, just in kind of the the root of the word, that that you need to see that authoritarian, just like you might think of in terms of of a a, of a dictator of a government is just a command or a coercion. Like you will not eat that, you little, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, smack them in the face, just, you know, punish them if they eat a certain food. Authoritative is, is setting yourself up as the authority, as, you know, hey, I know something I can teach you. I, I, I love you, my child. And so I'm going to teach you what's best. And so instead of just those super negative, coercive, punishing type dictates that an authoritarian parent would do, the authoritative parent adds some reason, you know, hey, little little Truett, this is why we don't eat this all the time, or hey, little Truett, let's eat this first. And and then some, some like I said earlier, some of the negotiations. So we're teaching them that just like with anything else in life, some things we delay gratification, some things, if I could quote 
cookie monster from Sesame Street. You know, some foods are sometimes foods. Some, some foods are great anytime, but this is a sometimes food. And then the permissive parent is the one who just doesn't give a shit. I mean, they just let their kids eat whatever they want, whenever they want. And uh, I certainly kind of grew up in that childhood, um, you know, where just it was just like a free for all five kids in the family, uh, very low budget, you know, it, you know, per, pretty strong levels of poverty. So it's just whatever you could get, you got. And it was always just cheap stuff, you know, Lucky Charms, Kool-Aid, bologna, anything like that. So just as long as as long as you weren't starving to death, that was a good day in our house. But for the parents who uh, but but that permissiveness can also be much more a personality trait. It can just be the parent who just doesn't care that just wants their kid to be happy. Yeah, whatever, whatever makes you happy. Go to the fridge, eat as many cookies as you want, that kind of thing. So, so that's that's kind of the backdrop here. Think of think of those pressures. We're gonna we're gonna try and influence our kids to eat certain things and not eat certain things. And then we're typically all going to have some some pretty strong affinity for one of those parenting types as it relates to food. So I was going to read some of these questions just so you get an idea from that research context, what, what the, the survey takers would be asking. So questions like this, if my child asks for sweets or biscuits, you know, kind of a, just a, you know, almost like a croissant or donut type thing in, in Europe, uh, I will give it to him or her. If my child asks for soft drinks, I will give it to him or her. If my child uh, or my child is allowed to take sweets wherever or whenever he or she wants my child, you know, so those are kind of the ones, obviously those are questions are related toward, toward permissiveness. So out of a huge st study, I'm not sure, you know, if there was, was 200 questions or something like that, but they would re-ask questions like that in several ways. Uh, so here's one that kind of gets toward the authoritarian parent. My child has to finish his or her plate. My child has to eat even if he or she is not hungry. Even if my child does not like something, he or she is obliged to eat it. I punish my child if he or she does not want to eat fruits or vegetables. I punish my child, blah, 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 if he or she doesn't eat, uh, finish the plate. Um, and then here's something that goes into more of the encouragement or negotiation. If my child do does not like something, I tell him or her that, uh, you know, she will get dessert. So, hey, I know you don't like those peas, but guess what? You want a little bite of that ice cream over there. You got to eat your peas. My child gets a reward if he or she eats fruits and vegetables. My child gets a reward if he or she finishes his or her plate. Uh, verbal praise. You know, I praise my child if he or she eats vegetables. Um, so, so you get the idea. So really simple things, uh, even in terms of education. You know, I tell my kids fruit is good for you. I tell my kids fruit tastes good. I tell my kids fruit is healthy. So I'm reading these things in kind of those those pairs, but um, but but you get the idea. I'm gonna I'm gonna pull this forward here. There's something else I'm gonna read to you. Uh, one thing you're gonna note about this particular research review, it, it is pretty heavily narrative. I'm, I'm gonna read a few things to you. I'm gonna have some pretty big sections up here that that I will read. Uh, because it's just so important uh, how they articulate this for us to understand it. But another thing in terms of just, just social science, uh, in terms of a research uh, endeavor, uh, one thing that we know is that there are three classic levels of socioeconomic status that we can typically define, and that is level of education, occupational class, and income level, 
But studies that compared these measures for their power of predicting health behaviors report that the education level is usually the most important, consistent, reliable measure. So that's why this particular group wanted to study this, you know, in the Journal of Appetite. They could have looked at any type of uh, socioeconomic status, but they, they know from all kinds of previous fields of study and, and different research um, you know, studies that, that if you just look at level of education, that kind of gives you the definitive answer for socioeconomic status. You know, we could compare stockbrokers to teachers, or we could compare this to this, but just as a blanket, you know, education level is, is a good um, dividing line. So this study looked at these three particular groups, or here's how they divided them. I mentioned earlier, elementary or vocational secondary education, which would be the low, uh, you know, 25% of the mothers fell into this category, technical or general secondary, little, you know, past high school, uh, there were about 30%. And then somebody in our equivalent who had gone, you know, to get a bachelor's degree or higher was about 43%. And, uh, as I said, oh, that's a line from the last one. So here, here are some of the results. And, and this, this just keeps getting deeper and deeper in terms of what they were looking at. But just, just right across the board, when they, when they looked at answering that first question, uh, the high education mothers tended to be less permissive. So they wanted their childs to do better. They gave some rules and, you know, some of them may have been authoritative. Some of them may have been authoritarian, but they did offer uh, higher levels of praise. They, uh, you know, they, they abstained themselves more often from sweets. So, you know, these were people who probably had a little bit more knowledge about health and nutrition. And perhaps in terms of socioeconomic status, they simply had the privilege of having more time to worry about it. You know, if you're working three, four jobs to raise your family and feed your kids, you don't have time to decide if you want to go to Pilates or yoga today, or if you're going to go read the latest Oprah magazine and get the, the best nutrition tips. So, you know, as I said, with my upbringing, you know, that was certainly the case. And so I, I would even make the statement that my mother, who is extremely forward thinking and liberal, you know, she really did care to educate us in, in all of those ways, but they just, just, you know, didn't have the resource to provide the best food. Um, but then yeah, here, here's where my daughter was correct in that the middle education level group kind of comes up and, and they were as high as the high education mothers in terms of negotiation. So instead of being com you know, completely permissive or authoritative, they're the ones saying, hey, you know, I, I have some resolve in this. I, I have a say, I want the best for my kids. And therefore, you know, I'm going to do some, some teaching and some negotiating. Um, so now I'm gonna, I'm gonna read just a little bit here, uh, some of the actual studies. Let me make sure I have the right one. So, so this is a result. If we were, if you were reading this research study on your own, you would see something like this in the narrative that, that here is our, the researchers interpretation of some of these results. But when you get down into some of the tables, some of the graphs, and they're showing you the standard deviations and the actual numerical statistical comparisons, there are a lot of things that, that you can pick out that you might not just see in the headlines, such as this. 
Uh, in terms of permissiveness, if we compare the, the low education, I'm just gonna start calling them low, middle and high, um, the, the low education group was, was actually the most permissive. And so, as I kind of alluded to in terms of my upbringing, you know, just that, you know, they just don't really have the time. Maybe they don't even have the information or education. Uh, but then in, in pressuring them, like you, you must do this, it was almost even across the board. So that's where parents are kind of exerting their, their own will. But the high education parents were actually the, the lowest, meaning the best in that. And uh, the middle and the low were, were about the same. Um, giving them material reward, such as, so, so this is an important part that um, was, was mentioned in some of the criteria, but it, it kind of jumped out as, an, as a growing important part that I don't think they anticipated. So a material reward, using food as a reward, if you get an A on your report card, we'll go get ice cream. If you go clean up your room, I'll give you a cookie. Uh, that is where the the low income uh, or the low education mothers were the highest in doing that and rewarding, and then the middle and then the high. So again, the higher education mothers, you know, I think either intuitively or because they had this knowledge, they're thinking, hey, maybe that's not a good idea. Maybe if you start incorporating dopamine and oxytocin and serotonin, these neurochemicals that make you feel good and make you seek these things, maybe, maybe conflating sugar and high calorie, high fat foods with feeling good and self-soothing, maybe that's not the best thing to do. Obviously it's not. And, and like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit more. Uh, verbal praise, again, the high education mothers were best in that, which is good reinforcement, you, you know, just literally saying great job. Uh, I don't know those, I don't know if any of you guys follow me on Facebook, but I, I post a fair amount of uh, photos for my grandson. Uh, we have one grandchild. He actually turned one year old today. Um, but just, just a couple of weeks ago when he was starting to really walk on his own, um, you know, he was, my, my son took a video of him in the living room and he was standing, you know, at the chair and, uh, he, he, he was standing by himself. And so everybody in, in the room was like, yay, true. Yay. True. And all of a sudden true, it like perks up and he starts clapping for himself and starts laughing. Then he walks across the living room, catches himself on the coffee table. So now this is like one of his first big traverses of movement. And everybody in the room is like, yay, true, yay, true. And then he beams and he starts clapping for himself and laughing. And then he just kept doing that. He was so excited for that verbal praise and just the affirmation that he was doing something good that he wanted to keep doing it. I mean, who wouldn't, right? I mean, we, we all love that, that affirmation and, and, and feeling of being accepted. Um, but parents often make the mistake of using those rewards, not just verbally or through some other way, but through food. And this is something that if you guys take this away, um, you know, and, and who doesn't like, like we love food. We love the taste of food. There's so much to enjoy there, but keep in mind that a child's brain is still developing all the way through their mid twenties. And, and it's not just that you're creating a knowledge bank in these little empty brains, you're literally forming how they work. 
you're making neurochemical connections that will be there for life. So if every time you, you know, if, if your child falls down, they scrape their knee, they're crying. Oh, 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 little Susie, you're okay. You're okay. Let's go get a popsicle. If every time you self-soothe or reward or punish by food, you're ingraining that shit for life. And so even though it feels good to do that. And we love to reward our kids with things that taste good. And even if we, even if we do value those as a quote, sometimes food, we have to be careful that we're not approaching it in a way that, 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 that squishes those things together. Remember the old, the neurological phrase, what fires together, wires together. If it's food, pain, food, pain, food, pain, or food, pleasure, food, pleasure, food, pleasure, that's going to be the way their brain works the rest of their lives. They're always going to stress, you know, when they feel stressed, boom, I need food. I feel sad, boom, I need food. Um, you know, that's that's on us as parents. We create that. That's not born in a, uh, in a person. But uh, let's go on a little bit here. Um, encouraging and discouraging things like uh, fruits and vegetables. Uh, again, pretty across the board, but this is where the middle, middle, of the road education level parents actually do best. So this is where my budding little psychologist daughter was right at 19 years old. She said, I don't know, some of those elitist dicky, you know, parents, they may be too strict. And, uh, and so, you know, in, in just terms of encouraging and discouraging the middle education parents had it closer to being right because some of the higher education people may just be a little bit too strict and, and too uh, staunch in their, in their thoughts. Um, here's an interesting one, restraining from negative modeling. Um, that's where the higher education parents are. Um, restraining from negative modeling. You can take this two different ways. And, and this is what I want to talk about. This one and the mother's sweets consumption and the mother's soft drink consumption. Um, this is where the, the middle group, again, I think, you know, had it closer to being right. Uh, but the number one thing, and this is, this is another critical point that I'm going to kind of just let, let out right now, even before we get into the, some of this narrative, is, is that um, in just another study, I'm, I'm not going to go into this too deeply here. It wasn't covered in a study. But in other studies, this is very important from a parallel perspective. Uh, the most important thing to understand, if, if you want to guard your kids against disordered eating, it's not even what we tell them. And it's sometimes not even what uh, they see us doing, which you're going to see, see next. It's what they hear come out of our mouths. So I, I dated a girl in high school that she would go home from school and her mother would have cut out little articles like how to lose weight and have them on her bed or her dresser. You know, uh, I mean, how devastating your own parents when you're 15, 16, 17 years old saying directly, you're not good enough. Here's, here's some information on how you can lose weight and look better because as your mother, this is important to me, how you look. Um, just, just crushing. But guess what? Besides that, besides something as, as ridiculous as that, 
the number one way to cause an eating disorder within a child is for the mother to criticize herself. So when a mother sits down at the dinner table and says, oh, I can't eat that, I'm too fat. Or when the mother stands in front of the mirror and grabs her stomach and says, oh my gosh, look at this fat, I'm so disgusting. When the kids hear that, you're giving your kid an eating disorder. Like that's just, that is the number one path toward that. So all the things that we're talking about here, you know, I think there's a lot to learn, but that is an important one that was not included in the study. So let me, let me read some of this. I, I said it would be a little bit heavy in, um, in, in narrative, but, but a, a Spearman correlation is just a, a statistical analysis way. It's, it's one of the ways that uh, statisticians look at correlates. So, so can we say this really had something to do with that? And we've talked in the past, we've explained like what a p-value is, a confidence score. You want to get something down to like 0.5% so that you can say that with 95, I should say 5%. So with a 95% assurance, we can say that this caused that, or this is associated with that. But in this particular correlation between the children's own consumption and and their mother's consumption, that it was substantial. Permissiveness was significantly positively correlated with, with children's soft drink and sweet consumption and negatively correlated with their vegetable consumption. So the permissive parent, when you just say, you know, like you're maybe you're a latchkey kid. And so you come home and parents aren't even there. You can just eat whatever you want, whenever you want, left to their own devices and without any kind of authoritative guidance, uh, kids are just going to eat a lot of sweet stuff and they're not going to eat very many fruits and vegetables. Uh, Now, using pressure to eat healthy food was positively correlated with the consumption of vegetables, uh, which again, I mean, using pressure, that's, that doesn't mean coercion. That just means saying, Hey, you know, we, we are a family that that tries to eat one or two servings of vegetables a day. You know, when you eat your vegetables, then you can have a snack later, you know, just even for the logical and rationale of it, you know, that's, that's part of using that positive pressure. Using food as a reward was also positively correlated with the consumption of food. So this is, this is what I said earlier. If we use reward or use sweet foods as a reward, then that's going to positively increase the consumption of sweets. Now kids are going to eat more of them because now they're starting to associate that with reward. Uh, praising kids verbally for their consumption of fruits and vegetables were positively correlated with fruit and vegetable consumption. So again, you know, you just say, you know, yeah, you're so, you're so strong. You're such a strong little boy, Truett, eating those, those carrots like that way to go Truett. Uh, you know, just hearing that, that positive praise that makes, makes kids want to eat more of that. Uh, n- negotiation about tasting an amount was positively correlated with consumption of vegetables. So again, nothing wrong with saying, Hey, we eat this first. And then when you eat your vegetables, you get this. Um, you know, it's something that we did as parents all the time. Of course, we had tons of cookies and sweet foods. It's like anything in the world you could eat. It was in our house, but our kids just knew there were contexts, you know, that uh, that would dictate when we'd eat those. We even had, even until all of our kids were well into the high school, high school years and beyond, uh, we always had Friday night ice cream night. Like that was a fun thing, you know, as a family, we would all watch a movie or do something, play games, and we would have ice cream and it, w- it would be fun. Like we would, we, we got to, you know, we'd let the kids pick out what kind of ice cream they want. Maybe we're gonna have ice cream Sundays or this. When I was a kid, like every night was ice cream night. When dad got home, my, my dad who had a pacemaker implanted at 59 years old, 
I mean, imagine being just seven years older, six, six and a half, seven years older than I am now. And my dad's already got a pacemaker and was dead five years later of heart disease. Like he was a guy who would come home and eat a huge meal and then bring to the couch an ice cream sundae with Hershey's syrup and whipped cream, you know, this big. And how do you say no to your kids when you're doing that every day? So I grew up as a very overweight, chubby little kid because, you know, talk about permissive, um, you know, just, just, you know, eat whatever you want. And then that particular role modeling and even encouragement. So, uh, so, uh, so catering to the de on the demand of the children correlated negatively with vegetable consumption and positive with consumption again, um, uh, permissiveness, parental restraining from negative modeling behavior, uh, no consumption. So the parents saying, I don't eat that ever in the presence of my kids were actually correlated positively with the consumption of fruits and vegetables and negatively with, with soft drinks. So again, you know, kind of like in our household, if you looked at my wife and me, as you guys know, from hearing me talk every single day, you know, of course I eat some foods that are a little bit indulgent or decadent, uh, but because of my health values and because of my maybe athletic goals, you know, it's a, it's a pretty small portion. And again, by context. So when the kids see that, when they see that role modeling, that just kind of becomes their norm. So uh, as they say, it's not uh, what we say, it's what we do. So the, the first outcome variables uh, were dichotomized. Uh, okay, no, I don't want to read you guys all that. Uh, da -da -da. Okay. High and middle education children were more likely to consume vegetables regularly than, than low, and high education children were less likely to be daily soft drink consumers. Um, no significant differences were found for daily fruit consumption, though comparing pupils who consume fruit five or more days a week. Uh, what was I really wanting to show you? No significant differences were found for sweets. Significant education differences in the first model were... There's nothing maybe that I wanted. I think I kind of went over mo most of that. Let me skip to this. So now I want to get into parenting practice. I'm going to go ahead a little bit because those are outcomes. So the parenting practices... Uh, again, I already said this, but, I, but it's worth reading their own words. In our study, maternal consumption was the only significant predictor for all four outcome variables. Okay, that's why I was reading that other part uh, prior. They were breaking down all of the different variables and they were saying, okay, this is correlated to this, this is this, this is this. We think we can make this correlation, maybe not this. But the one thing that stood out that correlated everything the only significant predictor for all four outcome variables uh, were, 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 the, were the, the role of the parents. Significant parent-child correlations of dietary intake have been found in several other studies and may represent influencing factors like the role of parents as models for their children's food preferences and eating behavior, but also simply increased availability and accessibility of those items that parents prefer to bring into the home. So exactly what I said about you know, my dad and his ice cream habit versus our parenting style and our ice cream habit. So, so one, one cheesy little uh, example there, but it, it kind of tells the whole tale. Uh, what you do is going to be what your kids do. Uh, no matter all of the things that we say, and they were all important, all those things that we covered, you know, if you're authoritative or authoritarian or permissive, whether you, you, you know, reward or do this or that or encourage or negotiate, all of those things had some impact, but the one thing 
that trumped it all was simply what you did. So the the way you model your behavior wipes away you know, everything else, or, or at least it is the biggest correlation. So the positive association between using food as a reward and sweet consumption was in line with the literature. Using food as reward tends to increase preference for the reward foods. It may, of course, also mean that sweets are simply more often offered to the children. We expected that verbal praise after the child's consumption of the healthy items, a form of positive reinforcement, would have a positive effect on the consumption of those items. Verbal praise did indeed seem to have an effect, especially the consumption of vegetables seemed to be enhanced. So I think we, we talked about that enough throughout. So here's the main conclusion, and then uh, we'll open up for a little discussion. Mother's intake in particularly seemed to be a powerful influence on developing healthy eating habits of young children. Therefore, we concur with blah, 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 that it is important to teach parents, teach the parents strategies for becoming better role models, both for their own children and their children's benefit. I, I just used to love, you know, we don't see it anymore, but some of the PSAs that would be on TV when everybody in the world only had like three TV channels and you would have these after school PSAs and, uh, you know, different organizations took an active role in saying, hey, you know, seatbelts are good for you. You should put your child in a seatbelt. You know, th those kind of things. We, we miss that messaging now, that directness, but, but educating parents, especially as we're talking about low education parents who just may not have the time or encounter this kind of information, a little bit goes a long way. Furthermore, the development of skills to impose restrictions on the consumption of unhealthy foods and to restrict pressures from kids, as well as the development of skills to reinforce positive behavior, may encourage healthier eating habits and may help to reduce existing differences in food consumption of kids with different social backgrounds. You know, I got to say, um, I have done, I'm going to stop the share here. I have done a fair amount of volunteering in different organizations, doing different things. And, and sometimes it's just easy to forget that, that not everybody in the world is like us. Not everybody has access to the same information like us. And one of my friends in our community for about 10 years was the director of a downtown organization called Impact. And it was, I mean, it was downtown. It was, uh, you know, matter of fact, it was in the, the, the part of downtown that, that the greatest levels of poverty were and everything from just having after school tutoring for kids to job training for adults to uh, helping unemployed people, you know, learn how to even write a resume, even just, you know, with literacy, things like that. The things that we get so busy in our lives you know, taking for granted, you just forget that that those needs are there, and uh, and and how a little bit of information like this could go a long way. So imagine those those low education, low information parents, uh, because again, when I was doing my my dissertation on childhood obesity, I isolated I think it was either ten or twelve things that were driving childhood obesity. And a huge part of it did come right back down to the family. Yes, the McDonald's dollar menu is a factor. Yes, the fact that 84% of every ad directed towards kids on, on cartoons is a sugary food related ad. You know, yes, food deserts are a problem in impoverished communities. You know, all of these things down the line, you know, they all have an impact. 
but just the 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 information and the confidence by which we can give other parents to to help raise their kids in in the right way like some of them literally don't know some of these things it can have a massive massive impact on their kids but i would love to uh to see what you guys think uh you know keep in mind that with all of these different variables we looked at it came down to the fact that uh, if, if, if you reward your child all the time, consistently, almost in a bribery kind of way or a soothing way with the foods, you know, sweet foods, pretty bad. Uh, being too permissive, you're just going to let your child become very unhealthy, like was in the case of me. Um, if you're too aggressively autocratic, um, you know, then you're just going to make your child rebel. Uh, so there are all kinds of little behaviors we can do that are both good and bad. But man, just being that parent that models the right things, that does tend to sand the rough edges off of every other particular variable. So so I am excited to hear what you guys think. How how, how did your parents mess you up? And, and what, what do you maybe regret as a parent now looking back that you could have done a little bit better? Jump on in there, Dan. Uh, first thing I got to say is uh, that, was, that was an awesome presentation. Thanks. Uh, my When I first met my wife, she just came back from living off the earth in Hawaii. So eating is about as natural as you can get. And she said, you know, when, when we have kids, they're only getting fruits uh, for snacks. They're not getting any sugaries. They're not getting this, not getting that. They're getting fruit, uh, things, from, things from mother earth. Uh, and then uh, preschool hit and uh, elementary school hit and, you know, careers hit. And uh, next thing you know, the, uh, uh, the snacks just kind of creeped into the behaviors. Uh, so one thing I was thinking about is, you know, even with the most educated, well-intentioned, uh, intended parents, uh, the pace of life, uh, the, the fast movement that we've had in the last decade or so uh, can definitely influence it, no doubt. Uh, but I have a question. You know, you talked about what is fired uh, what is what is fired turns up turns out to be wired, and that the children's brains uh, keep on developing until the mid twenties. I'm wondering what, what about this? When, when do you think that this stuff is cemented, and you know, uh, and then it's too late to change it? You know, when do when do these habits actually get hardwired into a child's brain or a, a young adult's brain? There's there's a lot of nuance. So that's a great, great question, Dan. Um, but there's a lot of consensus around kind of a bell curve. So, for example, we know that child's personalities are definitely a strong part, like just organically what their brain, what they're born with in terms of an aptitude. So when I was born, I was a high charging, high testosterone, high active kind of kid. That's never changed from in utero till now. So that's going to always dictate how I interact with certain stimuli. And so then what we realize is by the time kids are about six or seven years old, mm -hmm. all of those initial synapses are, are formed. And so it's like, you know, literally by the time a kid is five or six years old, the environment they've grown up in, what has fired together has wired together. But mm -hmm. then nurture does take over, which is, okay, now we can still use our will. We can still learn things and change behaviors. 
but you're still always fighting against potentially your own personality traits and and potentially the environment that you know kind of created your your brain with your your parenting you know the parenting you received and mm-hmm. so so for example that permissiveness that i had you know you could eat anything you want whenever you want right um i still struggle with that you know like even if i say well i'm on a diet or this is this is a great food for me i should eat more of this should eat less of that i you know it's a fight it's a struggle whereas corey our health psychologist in our company had a mother who was a little bit more like you described your wife, which is like, I think Corey said, like, I didn't even know what candy was until I was like 10 years old or something like that. And now Corey's taste, like, she's like, no, I would just rather eat a salad. Like it, I don't even have a taste for that. I don't even want it. It's like, gosh, I wish I was like you, you know, but you know, so, so I think that's where obviously I do well with my self-care now, but it's it is definitely more of a of a struggle and a choice and a grind than somebody who didn't perhaps have that permissive parent that I did. Yeah. So it really boils down to um, uh, although you used education, you you, you, know, you think about you know the uh, inner city kids who uh, don't know where milk comes from. Uh, you know they haven't been taught you know what natural is and what healthy is. Uh, and it just perpetuates itself. So it yeah, seems. I mean, you know, like even right now, I was just listening to a podcast by an economist yesterday and just comparing black families to white families in America. So mm-hmm. 400 years of slavery and we think, oh, you know, Abraham Lincoln and the civil rights of 1965 fixed everything. Now we're all equal. Well, you know, the, the average black family has 13 percent of the savings and wealth that the average white family has to this day because of that generational poverty. And, and then you have stuff like the war on drugs and the war on crime, which was c- completely inflicted upon the black community. So you've got you know single moms put in jail for having an ounce of marijuana, again, perpetuating more foster care and generational poverty. And so, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we absolutely have just crushed some of the lower income, lower mm-hmm. education communities. And, and now they just, you know, there, there is no lifeline in many cases to them. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and I think, you know, based on what you're saying, you know, it's crystal clear that education and economic status tend to be tied together. Uh, so that outreach program that you talked about with your friend and your community, I mean, that stuff is critical to teach these uh, parents, especially the younger parents, uh, about what they can do because the impact is going to be lifelong. I mean, we're talking about, you know, are we going to change this obesity uh, epidemic epidemic here in the United States or are we going to perpetuate it? Mm. Well, I, I don't know if you saw my Facebook post today also with the bookmobile, but no, I when, I, when, I, when I saw that article in the newspaper this morning and it just like, man, my heart just exploded with these great memories. And, and even though I grew up in, you know, a pretty strong level of poverty, I am extremely lucky that my mother was somebody who is not going to let that stop us. And so through education, you know, that was her only resource is, you know, I can't give my kids anything, uh, you know, tangibly, but I can give them a hunger for knowledge and I can show them that there's a path forward in America, which is, you know, work hard, learn. And so, you know, I mean, that, that certainly saved me. You know, I, I could have been in, in that same cycle of intergenerational poverty, 
but because she gave me that love of learning and, and, and bought me books when we couldn't even buy groceries and just always, you know, I, I grew up, my mom took me to the library every week, sometimes twice a week. I grew up in the library. Wow. And like, that's a, that's a, that's a mom right there. Right. Who knows? I can't give my kids everything, but I can give them this. And, uh, you know, so I, 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 I told my wife this morning after reading that article, we're doing this. Like at some point, the next few years, I'm going to get my own bookmobile and this will be our thing. We will drive around the, the communities, the poor communities of Evansville on the weekends. And, and it won't be a scholastic thing where you have to buy it. Like we're just going to give books to kids. That's awesome. And they love it. They absolutely yeah. love it. We even did that. So one of the things I'm sorry, we're, I'm dominating this whole discussion here. Oh, that's good. But uh, when my wife started her gift store five and a half years ago, and we started going to some of the local like Saturday craft bazaars, that kind of thing, where you set up a tent and like everybody in the community is there. While my wife was doing that, I, I got we got three tents. So we would always rent like two spaces. So mm -hmm. she had her space. And then I had the kids corner and I literally just had cushions and carpets, an entire book rack of kids books. And it was a place that we said, hey, you can leave your kids here for babysitting, which I know is kind of creepy. But if you knew us, trust us, like I'm going to I'm going to sit here and I'm going to read read books to your kids. We're going to take care of them so you can go shop. And a lot of parents did it, man. I mean, I spent a lot of Saturdays reading books to kids on the on the lawn at the courthouse. That's awesome. That's awesome. That's great. It's a great conversation, no doubt. Awesome. Well, well, thanks for that, Dan. Good, good question. Anybody else have any thoughts? Amanda, Michelle, Cindy. I know Amanda is kind of, kind of around kids once in a while, a little bit. I think it's tough with the girls. You know, you have to um, walk a fine line. With my daughter being seventeen and an athlete, I'm grateful that things have changed. When I was her age, um, my muscular soccer legs were not the ideal you know, with all the Cindy Crawford, supermodel, Heidi Klum type. And now she is, um, she's in a generation of girls that all summer they're, um, I forget how she, she says it, but she's basically, she wants to put weight and muscle on. She's in beast mode as she calls it. Awesome. And it's more acceptable to have that. Um, and I'm appreciative of that, but then, you know, eating and, and finding the, positive way to say maybe you should you know monitor that or check that or I've always been really careful because I I grew up like that too you know your your parents constantly you know don't eat too much of this don't eat too much of that but I don't restrict her from anything if she wants to eat it eat it but I tell both my kids there are consequences to what you put in your body see how you feel the next day and maybe make better choices but um it's hard because like Dan was asking, when do they figure it out? You know, when my son worked for my husband last year, I opened up his car to find empty bottles of, I think it was Red Bull everywhere. Yeah. And <laughs> he was always very tired. And, you know, it's that sugar crash, I would tell him. And now that he's in college, he's not drinking energy drinks anymore. So I think there's a learning curve with your parents tell you what to do, what's good for you, what's not good for you, but you have to figure it out on your own. Yeah. And, and imagine Cindy with our four kids, what I do for a living, you know, if, if there was any kind of just 
imbued pressure, like I'm Dr. Joe's kid. Uh, and so we made sure we, we had to err on that side of we just didn't, we don't tell kid. We didn't tell him ever that you need to lose weight. You need to do this. We never said one single word, not even a sideways glance. We just had to trust that they were seeing the appropriate modeling and that just like you teach your kids about the birds and the bees and you teach them about drugs, like we taught about nutrition, like these foods do this, these foods do that. That's why I choose to, to eat this way. But we never, ever pointed a finger or said one single thing. And that's what my daughter last night said when I presented all of this research in the way this, this study showed. And I asked her, what was your experience with us as parents? And she's looking and I can tell she's just trying to find a flaw. She's like, I want to tell you, I'm like, dad, you did this wrong. But uh, she was like, yeah, you guys were just right down the middle. And, and I think that's why all four of our kids have a very healthy relationship with health and food. They don't have my goals. They'll have four different goals with fitness and nutrition and health. But man, they, you know, they come right back to the center of what their goals really are um, all the time. And it's really, really cool to see. Nice. I agree. Yeah. And I keep telling my kids I'm chasing them. So we work mm -hmm. out together frequently. And my goal is to not let them beat me at any specific CrossFit workout. Nice. <laughs> so nice. I think that pushes them a little bit too, to have their, you know, their 50 year old mom come close to beating them or not letting them beat her is um, motivation. I, I know that that's, that's something that I never thought about until recently, but as I look at my 27, almost 28 year old son and getting deep into his career and his own family and so forth, you know, I, I know my kids look at me and have to say, damn, like, uh, like when is, when is he going to slow down? Because they, they do feel, I mean, not that it's a challenge between us or a competition, but there, there's a little bit of pride. Like I remember one time, my son, my oldest son in a meeting of, of financial advisors. And this was kind of his internship group. So maybe there were 15 or so interns. So all of the parents were there. And the one thing he said that was really unique was you guys were like the best looking couple there. And it was just, Aww. you know, and, and, you know, even though that it's kind of a shallow comment, but at a, as a 21 or 22 year old, he took pride in the fact that he could look out at this group and like, my parents are fit and healthy and they just, they look like healthy human beings. And, and we were the only ones in the group. And so I, again, you know, kids notice those things. Yep. Modeling is everything. Amanda, to tell, you, you, you know a thing or two about kids. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's a lot to talk about on this subject. I mean, um, it's heart wrenching to see overweight kids and it's a, it's a big problem especially with, you know, fast food being so readily available. And I mean, that can definitely be uh, the main factor for that, I think, is just, you know, um, poverty and, you know, low income families, just, it's just easier or just having the lack of time. I mean, I can certainly uh, relate to being, you know, riding solo husband's gone and I just don't have the time after soccer practice. Guess what kids were going to talk about? You know, um, don't do that very often, but it happens. Um, I felt like with that survey that I was like all over the place because I feel like I do all of it, you know, like 
I, I am very strict on what that what my kids eat and the amount that they eat. Um, be, mainly because my youngest one is so petite, he takes after me, and he, for the most part, just doesn't like to eat meat. So I'm very um, concerned about his protein intake. So I'm always trying to find like things other than meat that's going to suffice. Um, I do regulate the sweets a lot until recently where I started thinking, you know, like if I'm constantly restricting the amount of sweets, they're going to grow up and they're just going to like go balls to the wall with it. And it's going to have like the opposite effect of what I'm hoping for them. So I've actually started incorporating more and more junk food. (laughs) I know it sounds awful, but I just don't want to be like that mom, like how sad is it that my kids have just like recently had a freaking pop tart? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. You know, like they're kids. They need the they need to enjoy their metabolism while they can. Mm. You know, because there's only so long until just you know you hit that age, and no matter what you do, you look at a freaking cupcake and you gain five pounds. So. <laughs> no, you're you're making a great choice, and, and you know that's a habit that my wife did. You know, my wife made our kids lunches. She still does. Like she still makes my 23 year old son lunch for work every day, my 19 year old daughter's lunch for college. And so like this morning as she was making Linnea's lunch, it was a great big salad with little, you know, protein, cheese, all this. Here's a little container of dressing. And then it was also, you know, like a cookie, like there's just, you know, and chips. And so it's, it's very well balanced. And, you know, my kids get to decide what to eat that, you know, my wife didn't give a whole sleeve of chips ahoy, um, you know, but it's like you said, it's like keep them around it, model it, teach objectively why these foods aren't the healthiest, why you want to eat more of these. And, you know, they'll figure it out. They'll 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 watch you and they'll trust the example. I definitely do that where it's like it's balanced, like I'll tell the okay guys, you you know, we just had Halloween. There's this ton of candy. If we're going to be eating this candy, well, then you also need to eat healthy, right? So we got to eat, eat our vegetables too. So they understand it. What I'm mo- mainly like wondering is how me modeling, because I eat completely different than the rest of my family. Um, I just wonder what that, what kind of outcome will that or effect will have on my kids? Because there was like, oh, well, mom can't eat that or mom can't eat this. And and it's like, well, I, can't, I, I, I don't really ever correct them, but I think to myself, well, like, I can, I just don't, I choose not to, you know what I mean? And, and those things, while they're good, it's just, I know that it's not worth it to me. I think, I think so, so Jesse Casas, one of our coaches, I think gave a great example during this last contest prep he did, but because you're right, it's all how you message that. So if you... If you say, oh, I wish I could eat that. Oh, mommy's starving. Wow. I feel like ass. I mean, this is awful. Like you're going to be teaching your kids all of this emotional turmoil around food. But if you, you like, like, if you remember Jesse making a couple posts and a couple comments on these calls where he's like, Mike, my, my kids are rooting for me. Like, oh, dad, you know, let me help you make your chicken breast salad or, oh, dad, you know, you'll get to, you're working really hard. I know you'll get to eat a cookie when you're done. And like he included them in the fact that this was his choice. This is for a competition in athletic endeavor. And, uh, you know, he just, it was really done in a way that they realized this isn't real life for everybody. My dad's a professional athlete. You know, they're, they're seeing him 
move from boxing to bodybuilding and now he's a, a coach. Um, so I, I think it's all how you choose to make them feel around you and the sport. Especially, especially just not making negative comments about your body. You know? So I actually have had my oldest son at my competitions with me and he's in the crowd, like whatever my number go 41 or, you know, whatever, like, so he understands. And my, my youngest one, he understands too. He just, I don't think he can sit through a whole competition. So he has never gone to one, but, um, but yes, definitely. I agree with that. I mean, they understand why, but I think that it's very important to just make sure you are 100% communicating. Um, but, you know, on the other side, if you think about it, like you're, when you said that you grew up with a low income family and, and you were on the opposite scale, but look at where you are now. So it's kind of like that modeling wasn't there, but you took what you didn't like, or maybe, maybe you didn't like that back and you were like, I'm going to change it. Yeah, that, that, that's rare. And I did, I had a really strong level of familial embarrassment on one hand. Like, like I knew from the time I was five or six years old, like, I want to get out of here. This, this ain't how I'm going to live my life. And, and I mean, I remember, you know, five or six years old, like, you know, trying to get my dad to lose weight. Cause again, I wasn't getting this from my parents, but I was getting it from school and from teacher and from PSAs on TV. So I was learning from Sesame street or whatever, what healthy foods were and how to eat. So I was, I was interpreting that information from another place. Uh, thankfully it was there. Uh, so, you know, again, I'm, I'm one of the people that reach and I, I feel very lucky that I, it did. And again, I, I mean, I did have a, I did have parents who loved me. I mean, they, they didn't have the education to know how to give me all the right things, but I had a great, you know, my mom and dad, you know, were married for 40 some years before he passed away and I had all of their love and support in the world. And, and that's, that covers a lot of, uh, a lot of lost opportunity along the way.